<clears throat> All right, well, if you have your Bibles tonight, um, why don't you open up to the Old Testament? We're going to be way back, second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 32. We're going to read this here in just a few moments, but uh, tonight we're going to be beginning, are going to be going, going to be beginning a, a three-week series um, that I'm entitling "Intercede, Invest, Invite." Uh, if you were here about maybe six or seven years ago, we actually went kind of through this back then, although it's probably going to be a little bit different. But uh, it's hopefully going to be something that if we if we own this, it could be very, very transformational when it comes to. Not only our church, not only our own lives, but hopefully in the lives of many of the people that we know in our lives, our family, our friends, our, our co-workers. Now, if you were to ask the question to yourself, what is the greatest need in the world today, what would come to your mind first? Some may say, how about less crazy people? That'd be a good one, wouldn't it? <laughs> or, or maybe how about more civility? Or maybe wouldn't it be nice if there was a little bit better morality in the world? Maybe if you're a little more spiritual, you might say something like, you know, what the world needs is for a bunch of people to come to faith in Jesus. I agree. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, that is a huge, huge need when it comes to this world. And, and, and can you imagine how the world would change if everybody came to faith in Christ. How awesome would that be? But is that the greatest need? We want that result, but is that the greatest need? Let me ask you another question. How do people come to faith in Jesus? Do they come by osmosis? Do they just wake up one day and say, boy, I think I need to give my life to Jesus because I'm a, I'm a sinner. No, I don't think so. Romans 10, 16 tells us that faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of God. Hearing the, the gospel of Jesus Christ that Romans 1, 16 tells us is the power unto salvation, that, that good news that the Son of God came and died for us to open up the door of salvation. Then we ask the question, well, how are they going to hear? Well, Romans tells us that as well in 10, 13, and 14. It says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they, be, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And, and how should they believe on him if they have not heard of him? And, and how should they hear without a preacher? And so you're like, maybe, well, that's good. I'm not a preacher, so not talking to me. Wrong. This isn't talking about the elder, the pastor. This is talking about the one proclaiming the good news of the gospel. That means that is all of us, if you know Christ, if you're a Christian, that includes you. So if you were to ask me, um, especially as I was thinking about this, and I was kind of in context of my sermon series, but I really believe this is true. If you were to ask me the greatest need when it comes to this world, it is for God's people to get serious about sharing the gospel message. Because salvations, although that is the ultimate, will not come apart from God's people sharing the gospel message. We as Christians have to put aside distractions in our lives and instead commit ourselves to doing what it takes to reach people for the Lord. Now, what do you think could happen here if, if just this group here committed to this? Like just us in our little corner of 
northwest Illinois, what could God do if we as God's people truly got serious about sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think there's a lot of things that could come out of that. Not only would it be transformative in our own lives, but it would be transformative in our church, and it would certainly be transformative in Stillman Valley, in Davis Junction, in Monroe Center, or wherever else our, our church can reach out. But the question is, how do we go about doing that? I mean, it's easy out, right? We just go and we share, right? Is, is that really just all there is to it? Or maybe, maybe there's a little more to it than, than that. Maybe, maybe it's a little more... I don't want to say complex, but uh, and as we're going to see tonight, we're, this idea of sharing our faith, sharing the gospel, comes with the greatest spiritual warfare ever because of what we're wanting to do. And, and not just on our part, but on the people we're trying to reach. And so with that thought, over these next three weeks, we're going to be looking at three aspects of what we'd like to call, you know, the kind of the Great Commission, what Jesus calls the Great Commission, of going out and making disciples that, that starts with us interceding in the lives of people, and then investing in them, hopefully to get to the point that we can share our faith and invite them to a relationship with Jesus Christ and His church. And so over the next three weeks, that's kind of what we're going to be looking at. Now, today we're going to begin this series by looking at this principle of intercession, or, or this idea of intercessory prayer. Now, um, if you were to define intercession as kind of the, simply the, the act of intervening on a behalf of another, but, but more specifically today, we're going to be talking about the need for Christians to intercede on, in prayer on behalf of lost people, on behalf of people that don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. And to kind of help us with this, what we're going to do is we're going to look at an example of the life of a man named Moses in the Old Testament who, who did this, who, who interceded in prayer on behalf of the people of Israel that he was leading in a time where Israel had really strayed from the Lord. Now, if you can kind of get the scene here, um, think way back, you know, really thousands of years ago when Israel were slaves in Egypt now, multitudes of them, and yet God, through incredible miracles, um, sent Moses and did all these, um, the, the, these, sent these plagues, and it got to the point where Pharaoh finally said, leave, you're, you're, you're to go, you can go. And so God, through these miracles, allow the entire nation of Israel to, to leave the, the nation of Egypt, and they get to the Red Sea, and, and they're fearful, and yet God parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground. They get to the other side, and, 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 the, and God just closes the water back over Pharaoh and his army, and the entire army of Pharaoh, the Bible says, was destroyed. I mean, these people witnessed the, the cloud that led them by day, the pillar of fire by night. These people woke up in the morning and, and gathered manna from heaven. They, they would grab quail that God sent for them to... I mean, these people witness things that, that we as Christians just dream about seeing. I mean, you ever think about that, how awesome it would have been to be there at the Red Sea when the, he, God said the wind? How awesome would that have been? And if that wouldn't have been awesome enough, here, here they are now on the other side of the Red Sea at the, at the base of, the Mount, of Mount Sinai, and, 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 in, and in Exodus 20... They literally hear the audible voice of God speak the Ten Commandments to them, which to them was very, very overwhelming. In fact, it says they were so fearful. They said, Moses, you talk to God for us, and then you tell us what he has to say. I mean, they, they were literally fearful when they heard the voice of God thunder to them. 
And so now Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai and to receive the Ten Commandments. And he's up there for, um, it says later on in the book, you know, 40 days. And when that, at this period, kind of period of time, that the people kind of became restless and their hearts kind of turned away from God and they, and they thought to themselves that something must have happened to Moses. And that's kind of what we're going to pick up now in Exodus chapter 32 and we'll read verses 1 through 8 starting with. He says, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who, was, who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So Aaron said, take the rings from your ears, from the, from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. And then Aaron took the gold, melted it down and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, and so he built an altar in front of the calf, and then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. So the people, they got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings, and after this they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry, which was acts of just gross sexual immorality. I mean, think about this. These people saw God do incredible things with their own eyes. They heard the audible voice of God speak to them. And after a few short weeks when Moses was away, they got to the point where they went and told Aaron, make us a God that we can worship. That's crazy. What's crazier is that Aaron said yes. And, and he did it, so he, they get all the gold from the jewelry and everything, and they melt it down, and this calf is, is shaped. Now, if, if that wasn't bad enough, they built an altar, and, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to this calf, which were supposed to go to God only. Now, what's interesting about the calf is that it was probably shaped after the Egyptian god of fertility, which was a god named Apis, which would have made sense why they would have done all the gross sexual immorality in their worship of this god if that was truly the case. But, but what's interesting to me as I was thinking about this was that Aaron said, tomorrow we're going to do not a festival to the cow, but a festival to Yahweh, to the Lord, to Jehovah. And if it, what's kind of interesting, some of the stuff I read this week makes this make a lot of sense to me, it's that it wasn't, it wasn't so much that they were worshiping the god Apis. It was more the idea that they wanted an object to worship. And they worshipped the true God, and in their mind, I guess, they, they diminished him into a cow. Because they were going to worship the Lord through the cow. That's crazy. It's bad enough that they made a graven image, which was a clear violation of the second commandment that God had just spoken to them. But really in doing so, they were trying to worship the true God, but diminished him into a form of a cow 
shaped with their own hands. That's insanity. How could they possibly go that far? Well, in response to this, we see verses 9 and 10. The Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now, leave me alone, he says, so my fierce anger can blaze against them, and I will destroy them, and then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. I mean, these people were in a world of hurt right now. I mean, they had rebelled against the Lord in an awful way. They intentionally ignored the word of God, perverted his name by forming gold into an idol of a cow. And because of this, the Lord declared his judgment down on these people. I mean, God's wrath was literally bearing down upon these people. And at the moment, they didn't even realize it. How in the world could they ever atone for what they did? But not all hope was lost because they had an intercessor whose name was Moses, someone that went to God on their behalf. See, even if, even if Moses would have come down from the mountain and told them what they did, these people had no way of fixing the problem. In fact, God told Moses back in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 12, he said to set boundaries for the people all around saying, beware that you do not go up on the mountain or even touch the border because whoever touches the mountain will be put to death. I mean, that's where the presence of God was. How could these people who sinned against God, even if Moses came down and told them they sinned against God, ever get right with God? They couldn't. They needed an intercessor. That's exactly what we see that Moses did for them in, in verses 11 through 14. It says, but Moses tried to pacify the Lord, this verse. It says the idea that he went and, and pleaded before God on their behalf. Oh Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your own people whom you have brought from the land of Egypt with such great power and such a strong hand? Why let the Egyptians say there God rescued them with the evil intention of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them from the face of the earth. Turn away from your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. And remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You bound yourself with an oath to them, saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven, and I will give them all this land that I have promised to your descendants, and they will possess it forever. And in verse 14, says the Lord changed his mind. It says literally he relented about the terrible disaster that he had threatened to bring on the people. And so God declares this judgment upon the people, tells Moses, I'm going to make a nation through you. And instead of accepting that, Moses like, he intervened on their behalf, right? He, he went and he interceded for them and, and he reminded God of all these promises that he had made to his ancestors of old, of, of Abraham and Isaac and then Jacob, and just said, God, you can't do this. I mean, you get this picture before him, it's going, God, you, you can't do this. Look what you said. You, how, how could you possibly go back on your word? And because of what Moses did, it says that God relented and spared the nation of Israel instead of destroying them. Now, let's put this into context when it comes to the people we have in our lives. And I really want to focus on this idea of interceding or intercession 
for people. And we're first going to look at the problem we have before us and why intercession is so essential when it comes to the lost people around us. First off, there's a problem of man's rebellion. You know, there are many people today who are living their lives in active rebellion against God. I mean, just like the Israelites of old, countless people today are living in active sin, um, worshiping things other than God, and even though there's plenty of evidence all around them that God is real, that God exists, countless people either ignore the reality of God completely, or worse, simply openly reject it. That's one problem, right? I mean, there's a problem of man's rebellion, but there's also this problem of God's judgment. See, because of man's rebellion, the full weight of God's wrath is bearing down upon them. Like Romans 6.23 says, the, the wages of sin is death. The, the penalty for man's sin is death. And it's not just talking about physical death. It's, it's the idea of spiritual death, eternal death, separation from God forever. And like the Israelites of old people today literally have the wrath of God bearing down upon them. People that don't know Christ are under the wrath of God. And I think most of us here know that this is a very real reality for many people in the world, but if we bring that closer, perhaps we know that this is a reality for people that we hold dear. People in our family, people in our workplaces, our neighbors. People that we clearly know don't know Christ. People separated from God that are either unaware or simply ignoring the reality of God. I think all of us probably know some of these people and and the reality of God's judgment should do something inside of us. And yet there's this other problem, which I want to call the problem of many Christians, which is this idea of complacency. That, that although every Christian knows the reality of those who are lost without Christ, so few ever put any effort in to do anything about it. The percentage of Christians that ever share their faith in their lifetime with somebody is, is like in the single digits. It's crazy. There's a statistic I heard this last week at a conference that I was at that says like in, in the course of a year, most Christians have less than eight spiritual conversations in the entire year. Not even the gospel, just spiritual conversations in general. Now, what if Moses, when God said in verse 10 that he was going to destroy these people and make a nation out of him, just said, yeah, that's a great idea, God. I'm, I'm done with these people. I think, I think that's a great thing. Just kind of start from scratch. I mean, I mean think about it. What, what, would, what, what, if, what if God right now just, just took care of the big problem in the world and said, all these people that are unsaved, we're just going to scrap them all, get rid of them. All we're going to have left is you Christians. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Except for the problem we still have us. We're still sinners too. I mean, sure, wiping all the people out from Moses would have eased his stress greatly, but what about the fate of all those people? They'd have all been destroyed. What would God do to them? Where would they spend eternity? 
What I love about this passage is that Moses didn't care about his comfort. He, he didn't care about himself. He wasn't caring about his legacy or some great nation that might be made of him. His heart was broken over the reality that these probably millions of people that he was leading, God was about to wipe out completely, and that broke his heart. To, to the point, actually, if you jump ahead a few verses at the end of Exodus 32, look at verses 31 and 32. The Lord returned, or Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, what a terrible sin these people have committed. They have made gods of gold for themselves. But now, if you will only forgive their sin, but if not, he said, Erase my name from the record you have written. Do you realize what he was saying? He said, If you will spare these people, erase my name from the book of heaven. That's how much he loved these people. That's the compassion he had toward these people. It's the same compassion that Paul wrote about in Romans 9.3. He says, for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if it would save them. Do we have that type of heart for people? Do we be willing to say, God, erase my name from the book of heaven, if only you will spare them? Now, as we think about this idea of intercessory prayer and, and the problem we're facing, why is it that prayer is so needed when it comes to this gospel mission we've been given? Why not just go share the gospel? I mean, that's where the power of until salvation is anyways, right? Sure. But there's one more problem I want to talk about for a moment, and it's the problem of Satan's deception. See, see we as God's people are fighting an uphill battle. These people that are not saved, that don't know Christ, they are in the grasp of Satan right now. He has them completely blinded. Many of them don't even, they, even though they may hear it, they can't even understand or grasp the enormity of their lack of decision towards Christ. And in themselves, they would never do anything about it anyways. Romans 3.11 says there's no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are heading for destruction. They, they hear the gospel and it's just foolishness. Like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You ever witnessed somebody like that? It's crazy talk. Or, or even 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 where it says Satan who is the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand the message of the glory of Christ who's in the likeness of God. People that don't know Christ are in the grasp of Satan. And, and our mission as God's people is to go into the enemy's camp and to free these people from Satan's grasp and, and help them see their need for Christ. The problem with that is that because of Satan's deception, he has many of them convinced that God isn't even real. When we go and share the gospel, they're like, I don't believe in God. Very, very prevalent in our day. Satan, he's deceived people into thinking that, that, well, God just goes by different names. You ever tried to tell somebody the gospel and like, well, I believe in God. What's the difference between your God and the Hindu's God? Your God and the Buddhist God? Your God and the Muslim's God? Same God, just different name. That's a big thing these days. He's got many people convinced that, well, if God's good, why do I need Jesus? I mean, I haven't killed nobody. I'm not a murderer. I haven't done anything real bad. Why would God send me to hell? That don't make any sense. He's got many people convinced hell isn't even real. 
and even the ones that may tend to believe those things, he's got them convinced that the only thing that really matters is fulfilling their desires, living life to the fullest right now, obtaining this happiness right now, and so they completely ignore what they see as a restriction on their fun. The deception of Satan is great. And those are the people that we're called to reach. How do we do it? And see, this is where, where this idea of intercessory prayer comes in. The, 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 this purpose of intercession. Like, why do we need it? What is exactly we're, we're hoping to accomplish by interceding for people with God? I mean, doesn't God already know that people are lost without Jesus? Why do we need to pray to Him and, and tell them they're lost? Now, one thing we know is that God is sovereign. He knows all things. He can, he's in control of all things. He could save people without us. He's God. But in His sovereignty, He has chosen us as the vessels who are going to be going out and reaching these people. We started to get to it in the men's breakfast this morning. We're, we're God's ambassadors. As if God were speaking through us, be reconciled to Christ. I mean, this is our job. He's been, the Great Commission was given to us. But the reason prayer is so necessary is because of this problem of Satan's deception. We need to pray for their soul. Pray that God would, would open their eyes. Pray that God would remove the scales from their eyes. That, that he would soften their hearts so that they can see their need for the gospel. It's not that God's limited but God has chosen prayer by the means which his hand most of the time moves on this earth. He has the power to do anything he wants, but he's chosen this process of prayer from his people where his power many times is released. Again, he could do it without us, but he's chosen to do it with us. And I am no, by no means limiting God or limiting God's sovereignty, but it's just the reality. He's called us to reach People, and as we begin to intercede for people in prayer, simply what we're asking God to do is remove anything that's going to hinder them from responding to the gospel. See, prayer isn't the power unto salvation, the gospel is, but prayer is a powerful weapon that counters Satan's lies. As 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 tells us, Though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing, that it exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity and making it obedient to Christ. It's just this idea that, that we have a power, which is prayer, that has the ability to combat the lies of Satan. And if these people are deceived, if these people are blinded, doesn't it just make sense that we need to seek the power of God to unblind them? Ezekiel eleven nineteen talks. This is this idea that he got speaking to the Jews here, but it's this idea that that he 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 describes some of these people have have like a heart of stone, this like impenetrable. And so we're, we're praying God soften these people's hearts, God, that they can hear, that they can respond. You know, John 6, tells us that no one can come to the Father unless they're drawn. Jesus says nobody can come to Him unless the Father draws them, He says. 
So, so what we're doing is we, we are pleading on their behalf. God, will you work in their heart? Will you work in their life? Will you make them ready for this gospel message? And can I tell you something? We should pray this with confidence. Like, like how often in our prayer times when we are interceding in prayer on behalf of others, do we pray, man, God, will you, will you give her that job that she's been, she's been applying for? Man, God, how awesome it would be to have, let her have that job? Or, or, or maybe, man, this person over here is sick, God. Man, would you, just, would you just heal them? Question, how do we know it's God's will for that person to have that job? How do we know that it's God's will for that person to be healed from their physical ailment or whatever it is? We don't. Because we pray everything according to God's will. But here's the power of interceding on behalf of the lost sinners is that we can be sure of God's heart on this. We can be sure of God's perfect will is that he wants those lost sinners to come to faith in him. That's his desire. It's the whole reason he sent Christ. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's the desire of God that all people would come to faith in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore I exhort first all the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, listen to verse 4, who desires all men be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Is there really any question what God's heart is when it comes to people that are lost and separated from him? His desire is that all men would come. See, when Moses interceded in prayer on behalf of the Israelites, well, what made his prayer of intercession so powerful is he was praying according to the will of God. Notice what he said again in verse 13. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you're bound yourself with an oath to them, saying, I'm going to make your descendants numerous as the stars of heaven. He's like, God, you said this. This is your will. This is your promise. I'm just praying according to what you have said. And see, this is the idea of what we're really praying for on behalf of others, that, God, will you just, will you just relent upon your wrath? Will you open up their hearts, open up their minds so they can receive this message of the gospel? Now, will everybody be saved? No. They won't. In fact, if you read on in this passage of Scripture in verse 26, Moses, after he spoke to God, spoke to the people and gave them a choice. In verse 26, he said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. But there was over 3,000 people that chose to reject God. They said no. There's going to be people that say no. But that's not on us if we're doing our job. That's on them. But friends, let's do our part. Let's do everything that we can. And that starts with interceding in prayer. Where we're praying God soften their hearts so they can respond to you. But can I tell you something else that will happen if we start doing that? If, if we begin interceding in prayer on behalf of people, it will turn our hearts, hearts toward the unsaved. It will give us a greater passion and a greater love for these people I mean, you know these people drove Moses crazy. In Exodus 18, we see Moses day after day after day, morning till night, it says, dealing with these people issues. Can you imagine dealing with the grumblings of three to four million people? 
I mean, that'd be crazy. And yet, because Moses loved these people, because he prayed for these people, as he prayed for them, his love grew and grew and grew to the point that he pleaded with the Lord, save them. I don't care what you offered me personally, save them. Because his love was so great for them. Does it ever bother you that, because it does me, like I've thought about this, like, have you ever prayed the prayer, God, I just... I need your heart towards people. I'm distracted. I know I don't love them the way that I should. I know I don't have compassion on them the way that they should because quite frankly, they drive me crazy. I think probably at some point we've probably all been, could it be that the reason we struggle with caring for people as we should is because we're not praying for them? You know, it's been said that you can tell a lot about a person's priorities by the way they spend their time. And I believe the same is true when it comes to prayer. Doesn't it make sense that if 99% of our prayers are focused on us, ourselves, our own problems, our own world, that we are going to be the center of our universe? What do you think might just happen if we change that ratio a little bit? And every time we pray, begin pleading on behalf of people. What will happen is it will turn our hearts towards them. It will grow in our love towards these people. See, if we want a greater burden for the unsaved, the answer, I believe, is interceding for them to God. So we th- that's kind of the, the purpose of intercession, softening their hearts, turning our hearts towards them. But as we think about what this looks like. I want to talk about a few other things. First of all, to have effective intercession, we need to make sure that our hearts are prepared before the Lord. I, I can tell, I, I'm pretty sure I can tell you this with confidence. I'm pretty certain that if Moses' heart was not right with God, he never would have been in a position to intercede for these people. But it's because his heart was right with the Lord that he was in position to be able to be there in that moment to plead for them. Can I tell you something? If if there is one thing that will cause our prayers to be ineffective, it will be sin. Isaiah 59 2 tells us our sins have cut us off from God because our sins, because of our sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. There's there's something happens when we have sin in our life. James 5.16 tells us to confess our sins to one another, pray for one another that we may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, it says, avails much. So we need to make sure our hearts are prepared. We need to, to have effective intercession. I, I really believe we need to target specific people that God has placed in our lives. There is power in praying for people by name. And so what I want to ask you is, who is it in your life that you're like, man, they need Jesus. So I have these little cards. Maybe you've seen them over on the table. They say simply, intercede, invest, and invite. And on the back, there's five lines. And these are going to be sitting right up here, and I would encourage each of you that are interested to take one of them. And, And what I want you to do over these next weeks and months is well, first off, pray, God, who, who do you want me to put on this list? And as he gives you those names, 
every day, every time you think about it, begin praying for those people by name. What we talked about, that that God would remove the deception of Satan, that he would soften their hearts, that he would pursue them and, and give them eyes to see. Begin praying for these people by name. We also need to pray not just every once in a while, but pray, dil- pray diligently for these people. And I'll go on to say this, if we're going to have effective intercession, we need to pray that God would give us boldness and equip us to confront them with the truth. Because as we get to the invite part, that takes boldness. That's when the rubber really meets the road. We could pray for all the people. We could pray for people, that, but that prayer is leading to the point where we're confronting these people with the reality of the gospel. Ephesians 6, 19 and 20, this is the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest heroes of the faith that there was. This is what he said to the church at Ephesus in verses 19 and 20 of chapter, chapter 6. He says, pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for the Jews and Gentiles alike. I am unchanged now still, still preaching the message as God's ambassador, so pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. Can I tell you something? If the Apostle Paul, who was in prison writing this, asking people to pray for him to speak boldly and not stand back, if he needed that, can I tell you something? So do I, and so do you. We need to pray, not just for ourselves. We need to pray for one another, that as we do this, that God would give us boldness, that he would give us grace, that he would help us to see those opportunities. Friends, the fight we're against is against Satan, against his evil army. When we go out with this message of Christ, we're going to war. Are you prepared for the fight? Are you willing to go? How many people can we reach if we all as a church committed to praying diligently for these people day after day after day. It starts by interceding in prayer. Are you willing? And as I close, I just want to consider one more thing that really is the heart of all this. And it's the motivation behind all of this. The motivation that should give us passion for the lost. If we do this in our own strength and power, it ain't going to happen. We need Him. But what's our motivation? For starters, we need to be motivated by what Christ did for us. Can I tell you something? The Israelites weren't the only one who had the wrath of God on them. The lost sinners that are out there weren't the only one, aren't the only ones that had the wrath of God on them. Can I tell you something? There was a day and a point that all of us did. The wrath of God was bearing down upon us. And if it wasn't for what Christ did, we'd all be up a creek without a paddle. If it had not been for Christ's obedience to his Father, coming to this earth, going to a cross, dying and rising again, friends, we would be all still stuck in our sin with absolutely zero hope. And yet Christ interceded on our behalf so that we could be saved. And I want you to consider one more thing. Not only should we be motivated by the fact that Christ interceded on our behalf, we should be motivated that there was some other person that interceded on our behalf as well. Can I tell you something? If you're you're here and you know Christ as Savior, it didn't happen by osmosis. You didn't just wake up someday and decided you need to come in faith. Can I tell you something? I guarantee you heard the gospel somewhere from some obedient saint that, that shared the truth about Christ. 
If you're here and if you're a Christian, it's because somebody told you the truth. And can I tell you something? If somebody cared enough to tell you the truth, likely that person lifted your name up to prayer many, many times to the Lord, asking God, open their eyes, open their eyes, help them to see, help them to come in faith. Friends, we need to be that person for somebody else. There are people out there right now waiting on us to be interceding on their behalf, to be lifting up their name to the Father and making that choice of obedience to tell them the truth of the gospel. Friends, let's do it. Let's get serious about this because it'll not only change their lives, it'll not only change our communities. Can I tell you something? If we commit to this, it will change us. You will find a passion in your life you've never had before, excitement and joy in your life you've never had before. Let's commit to this over these next few weeks and beyond, and let's see what God will do. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for who you are, Lord, for your grace that you've given us in Christ. We thank you, Father, for the fact that you have chosen us, you have opened our eyes, you have given us the faith to respond to you, God. You have, God, you have given us salvation. God, you've given us salvation. You put that person in our life to share that gospel that we could respond. Father, thank you. Thank you, God, that you softened our hearts. Thank you, God, that you opened our eyes to see our need for Christ. Thank you. Father God, there is no credit that we can take for our salvation. It is absolutely your work in our lives. Not of works, as Ephesians says, that no man can boast. It's a gift that you have given us through Christ. Let us, God, never take that for granted. Never let us, God, lose the amazement of that truth. But Father God, let us take that truth and let it spur us on, Father, to, to love and good works, as your word says. Let us see people, the people in our lives that don't know you, Father, let us see them with a new heart, with new eyes, with a heart of compassion, Father. Give us that heart of compassion as we begin to pray for them. And God, as we do, I pray that you would begin to work upon them even now. Even as we think about who those people may be, God, that you would move in their hearts, move in their minds, move in their lives. God, give us open doors that we can speak. God, through our obedience, Father, I pray that you would move and that many lives would be changed. Father, I love you, I praise you, I thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. As we close tonight, we're going to do